even though that sounds cliche, like the journey is more important than the end goal because you will learn a lot during it. And you might actually find that maybe the product you had in mind to build is not the product you should be building. And if you keep the whole team involved the whole time, and then on top of that, also engage with your users, you will know that at some point you will build a product that is useful and very much appreciated. And you have a team that really enjoys working on it. And this also means that if you do come at a point where maybe the product isn't what it's supposed to be, people are motivated to go on and to work towards the the perfect outcome in the end. Welcome to Quantum Black Voices, a series of interviews with the talented and diverse people building products to capture the transformative power of advanced analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Today, we meet software engineer Meryl Tyson. We talk about her unconventional path from liberal arts and sciences student to software engineering. We talk about the importance of monitoring model performance when trying to predict house prices and why a continual improvement mindset is important to maintain a diverse and inclusive working environment. To learn more about Quantum Black and McKinsey Company, head to www.quantumblack.com. Enjoy the episode. Thank you very much for joining us, Meryl. Can we start with an introduction, maybe? My name is Merel Thijssen, and I'm a software engineer at Quantum Black, and I'm originally from the Netherlands. Welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about your background before you joined Quantum Black? Of course. So I'd like to start with when I went to university, because my journey into software engineering is maybe not the most traditional one. So when I was 18, I went and did an undergraduate in liberal arts and sciences in Amsterdam. And it was an amazing degree because it allowed me to try a lot of different courses in different fields. So I did things ranging from film history to psychology to calculus and neuroscience. But it's also where I found out about coding and what it means to be a software engineer. So in my first year, I had taken a lot of different courses and there was a new one that was called Programming Your Worlds that I found sounded really interesting because I didn't really know what it meant to do computer science. Of course, I knew it was a field and I knew it was related to coding, but before that, I'd never been able to try it out at school. We didn't have any coding courses, so I just didn't really know what it meant. And in my head, I thought I would enjoy it because it would involve problem solving And it was a technical thing. And I I quite liked maths and kind of cracking puzzles and that kind of stuff. So I thought in that way, it would be very interesting to me. But what I found out was that it was also incredibly creative, which is actually why I then realized this was the path I wanted to continue on. And I actually wanted to become a software engineer. And in this first coding course, I learned a lot about what it means to do programming, but my favorite project was actually when our professor told us to just build something that showed that we had learned how to code. And at first it was very overwhelming because I felt like, oh, how do, how do I prove this? But then I realized he doesn't really care what we build. It can be anything we want. And that felt very powerful because it was like, he has basically given me this tool that now enables me to just build things that I can come up with really. So when I 
finished my degree in Amsterdam, I decided to do a full course on computer science and I applied to UCL where I did a master's that was fully focused on fundamentals in computer science. And I learned about databases, compilers, hardware. So I also did a course on software engineering where I learned about what it means to write software and what kind of different processes you can apply to it. So do you iterate over the code or do you write everything in one go? And when I finished this degree, I had definitely decided that I wanted to be a software engineer, even though at the time I didn't actually still didn't really know what it meant to be a complete software engineer because uh, at university we learned about the fundamentals, but we weren't necessarily prepared to work in industry. And so when I went looking for a job, I had decided I wanted to do coding. So I wanted to either work in backend or frontend. Um, and the first role I found, they actually allowed me to try both <laughs> to try and figure out, do I want to be a frontend engineer or a backend engineer? And in my first month, I then decided I wanted to do backend because I really enjoyed solving complex algorithmic problems. And I learned so much about what it, what it does actually mean to be a software engineer, because it doesn't just mean coding. I think usually especially in my first job, maybe 70% of the time I spent on actual coding, but that was both writing new features, but also writing tests and refactoring old code. So rewriting things other people had written. Um, I learned what it meant to do test-driven development. So write tests first before you write the features. I learned what pair programming was. So working with another engineer side by side I learned what APIs were, why they were important. And I also learned how as a backend engineer, you interact with the frontend team who usually use your code to display the frontend. So I also learned a lot about the realms between backend and frontend and how you integrate those code bases together. And what was the product that you were building there? So I worked on a product for academics and students. And it was a combination of a social media for academics and a tool to keep all the research they were using for, for their papers or the publications they were working on. So essentially it was a library to keep track of all the papers you had used during your research, all the data sets and anything you would need to cite at the end. And I worked as a backend engineer, I worked on what was called the platform team which was a team responsible for all the backend functioning of all the applications. So we had a, a website, a desktop app and mobile apps, and all of these were powered by the same backend. So I learned a lot about what a backend is actually, because at university, a lot of the projects you do are relatively small. They usually don't even involve front-end, they don't have tests. And suddenly I was working on a microservices backend where each piece of the puzzle was much bigger than any of the projects I've ever built at, in university time. Okay, so that sounds incredibly challenging, but I'm guessing between building this product and joining QB, there was something that interested you in data science, I'm guessing. Yes, absolutely. So I remember at some point a new feature team was started for the product uh, I was working on, which was the recommender team. And they were going to build a recommender system that would recommend articles to the users of the platform that would be relevant to their work and that were based on the things that were already in their library. 
because what we found was that a lot of people felt that they were almost wasting time searching on Google, trying to find the latest papers that were published. And they were having a really tough time keeping up to date with all the latest research, especially with things like archive, where people can just publish things and they don't have to wait for the whole review process. So we wanted to build a feature where we would help people to find the, the missing pieces to their puzzle and they wouldn't have to spend all this time searching for things and we yeah we would be able to hand it to them and obviously a recommender system needs to have some sort of recommendation engine in it powered by machine learning and in university had already done a couple of courses on machine learning so i kind of knew the basics and i then kind of found new interest in it and i thought oh this would be an amazing team to be on unfortunately i <laughs> i couldn't join the team but then I did start looking at, okay, what, what other options are out there for me? And that's when I joined my second company. So when I took my second role, I started a company that owns the majority news outlets in Scandinavia. And for all these newspapers and the digital versions of this, they wanted to have space for advertising, like any online newspaper. And they decided to set up a team to do targeted advertising. And this was the team I was on. It consisted of 30 engineers and we worked on what was called the audience targeting engine, which was a really big data pipeline that dealt with taking in all the information about the users that visited these newspapers and trying to segment them into uh, different profiles. Because how it worked was when there was advertising space, Anyone placing an ad would want the people seeing that ad to be likely to buy the product. So we would do things like try to predict how likely it was that a person would want to buy a new car in the coming year. And then we would, of course, make sure that those people would see car advertisements most, most of the time. Again, I was more on the engineering side than on the data science side in this team, but I did learn a lot. I learned a lot about what it means to work on big data, which is also definitely a distinctive field in engineering. Having to deal with very large amount of data is not <laughs> trivial. And it was really interesting to make sure that this system was robust and it could handle just the massive amounts coming in and would be able to deal both in peak times and in like lower times when people were asleep and it would still function in the same way. But again, it did also spark my interest for machine learning because all the predictions about whether people were going to buy something were again done by machine learning algorithms. And so as part of the learning program at this place, we were allowed to go to conferences and I decided to go to NeurIPS, which is one of the biggest machine learning conferences in the world. And that's actually where I met Quantum Black. Right. <laughs> And what was it about Quantum Black that attracted you to joining? First of all, the people. When I did the interview, it was one of the most amazing interview experiences ever. I didn't actually think it was easy or anything like that. It was one of the hardest interviews I've ever did. But the people were so incredibly nice that I just immediately felt I would love to work here. And then I think maybe even more important was that it was an opportunity for me as a software engineer to work in a machine learning environment and to be so close to data analytics, but not having to become a data scientist myself. 
Awesome. Tell us about your role at Quantum Black. I'm a software engineer at Quantum Black and I work on products. And the product I'm working on at the moment is for internal use and it focuses on model performance tracking, which means how to make sure that when you're developing a machine learning model, it's performing as expected. So both when you're experimenting and trying to figure out what the best model is to serve the problem at hand, but also once that model has been deployed and is operating in a live system, how can you make sure that it's still doing as expected and it's not suddenly predicting completely different things because maybe the data has changed or any, any kind of factor has impacted its performance. Can you bring that to life for us a little bit? Who would be using something to predict what? And why is it important that those predictions are accurate? Right. So our core users are data scientists. And when the data scientists are trying to figure out which model to build for a problem, so the problem could be predicting house prices. I know that's a very standard topic, but it's, it's definitely relevant. So if you want to figure out based on certain features, is this house worth a million or maybe two million or, you know, how, how much is it worth based on the information we already have about previous houses? This is before they sell, I assume. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. So, so, for example, a real estate agent might want to figure out, okay, how much should I market this house for? And as a data scientist, you probably already have a feeling, okay, this model might be suitable for this type of problem. But then depending on the data, one type of model or one set of configurations might work better than the other. So while they're experimenting, they might try out a lot of different things. And some of these models take quite a long time to run. So you you don't really want to lose any information about how it's performing, because that would help you to figure out if you're going the right direction or if you maybe need to tune little things or you need to have some additional data to make the model perform better. The tool I'm working on helps them keep track of all these statistics and then basically create a timeline of, okay, is the model performance increasing or is it going worse? They usually keep track of a lot of metrics to both decrease errors and increase things like accuracy. And keeping track of that over time will help them optimize to the perfect model for that specific problem at hand. And if the goal is to then put that in production, so suppose we're actually building this for a client who is a real in, in real estate and they want an app to do this for them, like they take a picture of a house, they put in some, some information and then we can predict, okay, this is probably going to be around this much. But then the model, when it's ready and it can be deployed, it doesn't mean it's going to be stable forever. It doesn't mean it will perform the exact way as it did when you deployed it. So if I put it in today, the housing market is probably going to change. So the data coming in is going to change. So the model will not be performing the same today as it will in like three months. Crikey. Okay, so on the one hand, they have to run all of these experiments to create a model that accurately predicts house prices. Yeah. But once they actually start using that thing, changes in things like data might affect its performance and they have to tweak it again yeah right okay and the product that you've been working on enables them to track those two things exactly and it will also flag when things aren't doing what they expect 
So they can put in a threshold saying, okay, I don't ever want my accuracy to go below 80%. And if that happens, I want, <laughs> I want to be able to figure out like that, that it's happening in the first place and then um, how I can hopefully resolve that. Wowzers. Okay. That's very cool. I guess that definitely ticked the creativity box. Absolutely. And also the data science box in a way, because our users are data scientists. So even though I'm not working on the data science myself, I do need to know what our users need and how they work. So I did learn a lot about data science as well. Amazing. Could you tell us a typical day for Meryl, the multi-talented software engineer at QB Labs? What does a typical day look like for you? Well, first of all, there's no typical day, I think, but I'll, I'll, I'll try my best to describe one. Every day we'll start with stand-up, which means the whole team I'm part of will gather in the morning and we will give an update about both how we feel and how the work is going where we're working on at the moment. And we do this by using our Jira board, so we keep track of all the tasks people are working on and update on whether we're making good progress or maybe we're blocked and we need some more input from the rest of the team. And then when that's finished, either we will follow up with some technical discussions or we all get to work by ourselves and uh, crack on with whatever we, we've picked up. There's also a lot of collaboration in the software engineering that we do at Quantum Black. So usually when you're working on a ticket, you will be talking to other people about how to do the best implementation. And these could be both your fellow engineers, but it could also be the designer on the team, it could be the product manager, or it could even be a user, because a lot of the work that we do actually comes from direct user requests. Might be people found, or a bug, which is an obvious thing that you need to solve, or they might have an idea about how we can improve the product. So we need to figure out, is this the right thing to build? And then, when we start building it, of course, we want to verify with those users, is this actually what you want? Is this usable? And yeah, are we are we on the right track, essentially? So you have direct access to your end users. So you can yes. say, look, I'm building this thing. Does it look right to you? Yes. That's very cool. And how much time do you think do you spend in protected time for actual engineering versus, you know, the ceremonies and meetings you were talking about in terms of user validation and collaborating with the rest of the team? So the team I'm on now has a really good balance between those things. So the ceremonies we put in place are stand up, we have our sprint planning, uh, retrospective, and then we have technical discussions. But the time is very well fenced off, so we hardly ever have to do ad hoc meetings that drag on forever <laughs> where we don't really know where we're going. And we've done this deliberately because we do want to keep protected coding time. So I think... An average sprint, which is two weeks, I will at least have seven working days where I have significant chunks to kind of space out my own time and spend it how I want it. Awesome. What advice would you give to someone that hadn't worked with an engineer before but wanted to understand their way of working better? I think the most important thing is to definitely respect the coding time. And it's something that I found, it varies a lot between different companies and different teams. But for example, the team I'm on now, I think we've nailed it quite well because we are the majority um, of engineers. So we all know how important it is to have time 
that you can really focus on a problem. And the reason why this is so valuable is because it's quite hard to predict how long you need for a specific problem. Like sometimes there's this really easy problem and it takes you two or three days to do it just because there's too many distractions and you haven't been able to sit down properly and just work on it. And there's times where you actually work on a really complicated problem, but you've nailed it within a day because you had an amazing boost of focus and energy. The reason why other people should respect this kind of fenced off coding time is because any type of interruption, even if it's an email or a 10 minute chat, it can break that whole focus. And I found personally, when we were in the office physically, I would sometimes just go and sit somewhere else so people wouldn't be able to find me. (laughs) Other people do it by putting on headphones and just making a very physically obvious kind of fence like don't don't disturb me and it it doesn't mean you don't want to collaborate definitely not like of course we're we're still we're still a team and we do really like collaboration as well but having the freedom to also be very strict about your boundaries is something that's that's essential for having productive engineers on the team and in terms of advice for a, a new engineer how how would you suggest that they broach that topic with someone that's not familiar with this idea of protected coding time how do they explain that to someone i think first of all just be very honest about it just explain that the way you work it might be different from what they're used to and try to come to an agreement by saying okay every afternoon from say two to five is my coding time and I'll, I'll block that in my calendar. If there's something urgent, I'm still there. You can definitely still send me a message on Slack or send me an email, but just know that I might not reply because I'm, I'm in the zone. I'm in the, in the coding zone. And I think it's also about having respect for their role as well and understanding how, how they work and trying to figure out, okay, wh- what is your optimal way of working? And it's it in the end, it's also a personal thing. You know, I I know engineers who love working in the middle of the night, so they might be available all day and then also do coding at night. But and I also know engineers who actually don't really mind going from one task to the other. So it is it's in the end, it's also a personal thing. And I think even if you're not working with engineers, it's good to discuss people's working working style and and what works best for everyone. Got you. Can you tell me a little bit about what else you do within Quantum Black outside of your engineering responsibilities on the products you're building? So in terms of the product I'm working on, I'm the lead engineer on it, but I'm also embracing some other responsibilities. So for example, at the moment I prioritize the backlog and I engage with users to get feedback from them. I guess in in general in Quantum Black, there's no one mold that kind of fits everyone who's an engineer. Like we all do slightly different things. And at the moment for the model tracking tool I'm I'm working on, I'm yeah, embracing quite a lot of different things. So the very technical, I lead the technical discussions, but I also make sure that the work we are doing is the right thing. I help users debugging things. So very hands-on collaboration with them. And at the moment, I'm also working with a designer to figure out how this product can evolve in terms of the user interface and the user interaction with it. And that's not, yeah, it doesn't always, 
some some weeks I basically don't don't code, not because I'm not working on the product, but just because I'm focusing on slightly different aspects. And another very important part of my role is making sure that all the security is is right. So all the packages we have in the tool are up to date and we are opening up this project, we would be ready in the terms of security. Like there there wouldn't be any leaks or any very bad code in there that's hackable. <laughs> Do you think this is the nature of the beast? We just happen to be working on lots of very different products and that means that occasionally people have to play a slightly different role if needs be? Yes, absolutely. I think this is definitely the first place where I've been able to do so many different things. I've always worked with relatively diverse teams in the sense I was always a designer, backend and frontend, even QA engineers. But this is the first place where I've also been really involved in user interviews I've been present at them, but also been able to ask questions, even lead some of them, which is completely new to me, but something that I feel a lot of companies underestimate because they think the engineers are the people building the tool. So there's no point in them attending a user interview, but in the end, I'm making something for someone else. So if I don't understand how they would use it, how can I properly build it for them, right? Because even if they don't interact with the code directly, they would, it might be they care a lot about performance. And if I don't know that, I might write really beautiful code that's actually really slow. And then the user will still not be happy. So it's, it's very important for everyone on the team to know why you're building something and ultimately making something that someone else will want to use. Fantastic. Tell me a little bit about the role you're playing currently in our DNI initiatives. Yes, yeah, so I have chosen to become one of our diversity and inclusion champions. Um, this is a new initiative across Quantum Black to be visible and knowledgeable about what it means to be a diverse workplace and to have people who really champion it. And they wanted to have someone from each guild. And the guilds are the data scientists, data engineers, machine learning, uh, design. So all the kind of different roles would have at least one or, or two representatives to make sure that each of these respective parts of the company value diversity and make sure that everyone feels included. It's something that I've always found really important because as a, I guess as a woman in tech, you often can find very lonely and excluded. I'm very happy to say that Quantum Black is a, a wonderful place and it's probably the place where I've, the minute I stepped in, I felt I was at home. I've never felt <laughs> as included as I did here. But also my previous experiences do make me realize that this is not always the case. So I do want to be able to, yeah, make sure that this environment stays this way and where we can, we even improve. Any advice for anyone interested in the same topic? How do you maintain that environment? I think first of all, it's talking about it and making sure you're aware of what things are going well, but also what things aren't going well. So I think even in places where we do care a lot about diversity and inclusion, we're, we're not perfect and there might still be things that are going wrong and that might be going unnoticed just because it's not happening at large scale. Of course, everyone knows about examples where really obviously bad things happen, but also small things can really harm an inclusive environment. So I think if you try and at least 
talk about it and make sure that everyone is aware that's something that you should also feel comfortable talking about. That's the first step. And then when you're kind of in that space where it's one of the things that everyone values, you should go further and really make sure that you kind of carry it on throughout the organization. So starting with recruitment, but also how do you present yourself to the to the world and how can you even contribute to society without just focusing on hiring? Because of course in hiring, you're, it, it's kind of a, it serves you as well because you will get people into the company, but you should also care about what does the landscape in general look like? How can we improve the technical yeah, the technical industry field in general, how can we contribute to that? I guess we embrace a, a, an attitude of continual improvement across, across lots of things within organizations, but I guess the same principles should be applied to diversity. It's not one and done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because people leave as well, right? It's not like you hire 10 super diverse candidates and then you never have to focus on it again. Amazing. So for anyone that's listening, who's interested in the discipline of engineering, where would you suggest they start? What resources should they go to? When I was learning how to code and learning about engineering, apart from university, I always went looking for online courses. What I like about them is they're usually free. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a good perk. But also you can always wind back and relearn something it's not like a lecture where you have to follow and then if you've missed something you will never be able to find it back so it's a really a nice way of creating your own learning style you can watch as many videos as you want but the ones i recommend mostly are the ones that have a practical part of the course as well so one of my favorite courses was on Udacity and it was about web development. And the final result of the course was that you would have built your own website. Going in, I knew exactly this is my end goal. I'm going to be able to build a website while learning about the concepts that are important for web development. So it's not only theoretical learning, but it immediately has a practical application and you actually end up with something you can show to people as well. So I would always recommend looking for a, a combination between maybe some theor theory, but also a lot of practice because you can only really learn how to code and how to engineer things by doing it. Only reading about it won't make you an engineer. So the, the places to go to for me would be Udacity, Coursera. And Coursera is a bit more academic, but you will find amazing lectures from professors from MIT and Harvard. So that's also pretty cool. And then there is also... Code Academy, where they have a lot of practical courses on both backend languages like Python and Java, but also JavaScript, CSS, HTML, any kind of language you can think of, really. Awesome. What mindsets do you think are important for a team and stakeholders to adopt to create a successful product building environment like the one we have in QB Labs? So to me, the most important thing is that you, you are a team and it's not just one person building this product. It's everyone in the team and every member of the team is equally important, especially when you're working on technical products. I think often people think if you just have a couple of amazing engineers, you'll be able to build anything. But what they forget is that you also need, you need a designer, you need product management, you need different types of engineers as well. It's not only backend, you also need front end. You probably 
at some point needs a quality assurance engineer as well. And each of these roles are really vital to creating a successful product. Because if you, if you miss any of these, you will not be able to really compete. So it's important that each of these people is regarded as equally important and that everyone is also involved in every part of the journey. So it's not just, oh, you know, the designer does design, the engineer does engineering, and the product manager sets the priorities and talks to stakeholders. No, you all have to be involved into what the product is and what it should be and how you get there rather than this is the end goal and we'll just build until we have it. You really have to think about how do we get there and what are the important steps to take on during this journey? Because even though that sounds cliche, like the journey is more important than the end goal because you will learn a lot during it. And you might actually find that maybe the product you had in mind to build is not the product you should be building. And if you keep the whole team involved the whole time, and then on top of that, also engage with your users, you will know that at some point you you will build a product that is useful and very much appreciated. And you have a team that really enjoys working on it. And this also means that if you do come at a point where maybe the product isn't what it's supposed to be, people are motivated to go on and to work towards the, the perfect outcome in the end. Amazing. So it's a team sport. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Meryl, for your time. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast created by Quantum Black, a McKinsey company. This episode was produced by Tillman Becker and Catherine Shenton and edited by Clementine Rettig and myself, James Mulligan. If you'd like to learn more about Quantum Black, head to www.quantumblack.com. Thank you.